Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, I got a pop quiz for you. Do you know the percentage of 510Ks that are rejected by FDA first time? 75%. That's crazy, right? Did you know uh, what percentage of those are rejected for substantial equivalence, not demonstrating that? I know, it's crazy. You're not going to believe this number. It's 85%. 85% of 510Ks that are rejected are done so because of poor substantial equivalence. That's just staggering because the number one purpose of a 510k submission is to demonstrate substantial equivalence. So uh, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Um, I'm with Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences, and we talk about some common mistakes that can sink FDA 510k clearance. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the host and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at GreenlightGuru, John Spear. And today, uh, I've got my good friend Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences joining me as well. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, John. Well, uh, I know there's lots of things happening in, the, in our world these days. And man, there's so many things that we can jump into from a topic standpoint. Uh, I thought I'd, I'd flip it around a little bit. And I know you've got some good ideas and thoughts and and things that uh, you come across from time to time. Any thoughts or ideas on what we want to jump into today? Well, John, thanks for the opportunity to steer the the discussion. Coincidentally, there was a very interesting column that just came across my desk the other day uh, called Seven Common Mistakes That Sink a 510K Clearance. And lo and behold, you're the author. So I thought (laughs) that uh, what a wonderful topic for you and I to talk about a little bit. Uh, okay, uh, and we can certainly provide a, a reference link to that column uh, with our podcast. But before we start getting into the recommendations and sharing our experiences uh, with each other, John, uh, what was your motivation for writing this particular column? Well, uh, thank you, Mike, uh, and I'm I'm glad you had a chance to to see the article. Motivation? Well, I know 510Ks is an area that that seems to be, gosh, it seems a lot of companies struggle with that, and more so than than seems like they should at times. And I know you and I have talked about this topic uh, a time or two in the past, both on the podcast and, and just in our uh, normal conversations. And you know, there are some staggering statistics that are out there about the uh, number of 510Ks that get rejected the first time. And it just blows my mind. And it's like, well, maybe giving a few tips and pointers about some of the challenges or some of the pitfalls that they're totally in your control that uh, maybe that'd be helpful. Uh, that was really the motivation because, you know, 510K path, to my knowledge, still remains to be the most common path for getting medical devices cleared through the FDA. So, um, and, you know, can, coupled that with all the, the struggles that companies seem to be having, just seems like it would be a good time to, to share some tips. Well, that's a great reason. Reason for writing such a column, John. Uh, I think uh, that everyone in your audience would do uh, very well to read this. It's not a, a very long column, and it does have a number of useful tips, and, and we can talk about them. But you're exactly right. Obviously, the five 
10K is the workhorse of the medical device industry, at least here in the United States anyway. And in terms of specifics, let me just get a little more specific. Um, 75% of 510Ks that are submitted to the FDA today uh, are rejected first time out of the box. And of those that are rejected, 85% of them are rejected specifically because of of, uh, substantial equivalence or the lack thereof. And that's just so crazy. And is Mike, that is crazy. In the industry, no doubt. It is crazy. It is crazy, absolutely. So, you know, it's amazing to me uh, how many people think the 510K is such an easy thing, and especially substantial equivalence is such an easy thing. But if it was such an easy, simple, straightforward thing, how do we uh, explain those statistics? Uh, and I, I know, know we're focusing on the, on the 510K today, but for those in the audience that are working in the, the class, Three, the PMA side of the universe, it's actually even worse. 89% of PMAs that are submitted to the FDA today are rejected first time out of the box. They result with what's called a major deficiency letter. And many of the tips and tricks, so to speak, that you and I will be sharing today um, are uh, similarly applicable in the the, uh, uh, PMA world as well. So the first couple of mistakes that you mentioned, John, um, and I'll just kind of lump the first two together inconsistency with documentation and not using the checklist. Um, what can you tell your audience about, about those two things? Sure. Well, the, the, for me, the, when the, a few years ago, FDA came out with this um, refuse to accept policy, and they wrote a guidance document about that too. And with that guidance document, they included this checklist, this refuse to accept checklist. And the checklist is largely intended uh, to be a tool used by uh, an FDA reviewer when they receive submissions. They're going through that checklist to identify that really all the constituent components or parts and pieces of a 510K are there, that it's complete. And it surprises me how few people seem to be aware of that refuse to accept policy from from the industry side of things, from companies that are submitting those 510Ks. And, you know, it's the FDA is a beautiful thing at times because they, they tell you what the rules are. They tell you how they're going to evaluate those rules, so to speak. And I think this is a good case where, you know, use the guidance document that FDA reviewers are using. Use that checklist to your benefit because if you go through that checklist and you can identify hey, here's where we answer or address this particular piece and it's on this page and that sort of thing. You fill that checklist out and you provide that as supplemental information to your 510K submission, then you're doing your reviewer a favor. Frankly, you're doing yourself a favor. Frankly, you're, you're also confirming that all the things that an FDA reviewer would, would expect with your 510K submission have been addressed uh, appropriately as well. And I think, you know, people, a lot of companies, they get that uh, you're kind of building this 510k. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's a moment in time, so to speak. It's not like, okay, Mike, it's, it's Friday. We're going we're gonna to compile our 510k. I mean, I suppose some companies probably do that. But uh, the idea is that you're kind of building this thing as you go. And oftentimes, a 510k construction, you know, you may farm different parts and pieces of a submission out to different resources. But it really is important to make sure that all these different sections, they, they coalesce, that they, they are in sync with one another. And I think sometimes that, kind of just that basic check, that basic step to make sure that, that 
the content in this section aligns with the content in this section and that we've done all the things that we were supposed to do that FDA is expecting that we do as part of that. That's really what those two two uh, um, pitfalls are all about. Well, I'll share a quick story with you and your audience on that. When the RTA guidance came out about two years ago, it was uh, one of the most popular and at the same time, one of the most controversial guidances that came out of CDRH that year, I believe 2015. Um, and I did a column on that uh, topic myself. But I remember I was at a conference and uh, uh, one of my friends from FDA was presenting that particular guidance and going through some of the details of the checklist. Um, and by the way, in that guidance, there are three checklists for each of the three different 510Ks, the traditional, the special, and the abbreviated. And ironically enough, the abbreviated 510K checklist is, in fact, longer than the traditional 510K checklist. Uh, the abbreviated 510K checklist is actually 26 pages long. So abbreviated doesn't necessarily mean what a lot of people think it means. Anyway, at this particular conference, somebody at FDA was presenting, and I happened to know this person quite well, and I wanted to ask her a question because I wanted to uh, generate some discussion on this. And I said, uh, with all due respect, do we really need anybody, let alone you know, our U.S. government or the FDA, to tell us uh, to put our names in our, in our, you know, on our papers? Because a lot of the things on those checklists are make sure you, put your, you have your name, your, your page numbers, you know, a lot of minutia like that. And she said um, um, that she agrees with me 100%. She and I go back a long time. But it's amazing to me, how, or amazing to her, how many people don't do that. So, and as a consultant for the FDA myself, you know, I have the privilege of seeing uh, submissions that come into the agency. And some of them are terrific. Some of them are, are wonderful. Right. Uh, well written, well thought out, well presented. But let me tell you, John, let me be brutally honest. Some of them are just total crap, 100% yeah. crap. So simply put, the more difficult it is for the reviewers to figure out what it is that you're trying to say, the more difficult the review process is going to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I, and I remember that anyway, guidance. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, I remember when that guidance document came out too. And I... I remember my knee-jerk reaction to that was, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Uh, this is crazy. Uh, and, and then, but then you understand what it's all about and, you know, review the details and go through that checklist. You're like, oh, wow, this is really helpful. You know, so if, if you're in the listening audience and you, you maybe have this eye roll or, or the moment where you're, you're kind of like in disbelief or frustrated about refuse to accept, my opinion is it's been a very, very good guidance document. It's been a very good change in, and from my perspective, FDA policy when it comes to reviewing 510Ks because, you know, it used to be one of those times where you kind of throw it over the wall. You prepare your submission, your 510K submission, and you kind of throw it over the wall to FDA. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, you, know, it, you go into like a, a darkness period of time or a radio silence, so to speak. And at least with the, uh, the RTA, the refuse to accept policy now in place, you have a lot more, at least in my experience, a lot more interaction with FDA reviewers. And, and for me, that's been a really, really good thing, really promising thing. And I would agree. Overall, I think it is a good guidance. Um, and I always recommend that the companies that I work with use it as a sanity check. I guess my comment is a little more basal, and that is, do we really need it? 
Um, and I'll give you one other real quick example, and then we'll move on. Uh, I had a three-page submission kickback on administrative review because uh -huh. it did not have a table of contents. One of the requirements in the RTA is to have a table of contents. Well, I said to the company, okay, technically this is my fault. I have to take credit. But to be honest, John, I was miffed. So here's what I did. I said to the company, add one line to this submission. It was a three-page submission. Add one line, because I didn't even want to kick this to a fourth page. I was definitely trying to make a statement. Uh, one line, say, table of contents, submission, pages one through three. That's it. That's what the company did. And then when we went back to the FDA, I said, and you know me, John, I, you know, uh, I said, um, uh, okay, look, I understand we have all our rules and policies and we have to, you know, follow procedures and so on. Uh, but let's not, let's not, um, lose track of the big picture. Right. No patient's lives were taken because a three-page document did not have a table of contents. Yeah. Alternatively, no, page, no, no patient's lives were saved because a three-page uh, document did not have a table of contents. Yeah. So what I like to, to, uh, to apply is what, my, what the lawyer, my lawyer friends call the, the common sense test. Um, but anyway, the RTA guidance is a, is a good checklist. I think we both agree that, that, that people should definitely use it. Let's move on to your next couple of tips. Uh, you talk about um, not providing all of the expected testing, including things like shelf life studies. What can you yeah. tell our audience uh, in terms of recommendations for, for, for those kinds of things? Yeah, that's, um, this is an area I think where uh, industry is still a little behind the times with respect to expected best practices when it comes to 510k submissions. I think there was a day, there was an era where in your 510k submission, you could make a lot of, um, for lack of a better term, we always called them I promise statements. Uh, I don't think that was a, an official uh, regulatory term per no, se. No, it's, it's what we call promissory notes. You're exactly yeah, right, promissory right. notes. Yeah, promissory notes. And you used to be able to do this for uh, a lot of things, like in some cases, biocompatibility sometimes for electrical safety testing, sterilization, validation, <clears throat> as well as shelf life. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there was a general... For the, for the audience that's... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to interject for the audience that that's not familiar with that, uh, John, and then I'll continue in a second. Um, basically, what John is describing is uh, we would, we would uh, make a submission to the FDA with perhaps 90 or 95% of the information present, but one or two pieces that might take longer, like, for example, shelf life or something, we would say to the agency, this isn't still in the process of being collected, and we'll send it to you as soon as it's done. In the meantime, you can re review everything else. That's basically the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there was an official memo or, or um, policy shift, per se, or nothing that was formal, at least. But, but today... Uh, those promissory statements are, are generally not accepted from the agency. Uh, and I think this is something that industry is, is uh, not up to speed about. You know, there's an expectation that you actually provide the results of those activities as part of your 510k submission. To say it another way, there's an expectation that your 510k be complete with your uh, results of of the expected performance testing, including things like electrical safety and sterilization validation and, and shelf life. Now, um, shelf life is can be an interesting one. Um, you know, like if you have a single use disposable product, I mean, it's it's common 
that you would want to have a three-year shelf life, for example, from data sterilization on on your product. Uh, well, you'll need to corroborate any shelf life claim with uh, supporting evidence, and that supporting evidence should include some shelf or some some uh, shelf life studies of some sort. The common accepted practice largely has been let's do some accelerated aging and yeah that's still uh, an acceptable means it's been my experience and, and mike i'd be interested to hear kind of your take on this it's been my experience that the shelf accelerated aging is is fine but there's a it seems to be a shift or a growing expectation that you're able to uh, basically corroborate that your conditions for accelerated aging are commensurate with what you would expect for real-time aging. And so I, I guess there's kind of a chicken and an egg scenario here. Like, for example, if you want to have a three-year uh, expiration date or shelf life for your product, uh, and you need to be able to show that real-time and accelerated, that those those are in sync with one another, I mean, what do you do? So uh, the practice that I've seen a lot of companies do is they'll initially... Uh, launch or introduce or suggest a lesser uh, shelf life. Uh, they may roll out with a one-year shelf life or something along those lines. Support that claim with uh, the accelerated aging, and and then oftentimes there's some real-time uh, aging to you know for those certain time points to be able to support that. But Mike, I guess I'm a little interested to hear what your experience has been on that particular topic. Well, in terms of shelf life testing, um, whether it's uh, uh, accelerated or real time, to me, it's a very basic validation question. There's nothing unique whatsoever uh, in terms of shelf life. What you have to do, simply put, is show that the method that you're using uh, uh, to accelerate your shelf life testing, whether it's you know commonly an increase in temperature or something mm-hmm. like that, matches the similar results of, um, of, you know, in real time. So in other words, you need to compare a, uh, one of your products that was, um, you know, aged for, say, a month real time compared to the equivalent of that in the accelerated fashion and two months and three months and six months and so on. So basically, simply put, you have to validate the test. Right. If you are using a shelf life uh, method that's, that's established and that's been used before, that becomes you know, less of a concern. Where this really becomes an issue, and this can be a topic of a different discussion, John, is when you're getting into very, very interesting um, new uh, medical devices made out of funky biomaterials, yeah. especially bioabsorbable materials uh, or, uh, or, or combination products that now start to include not just the device, but perhaps a drug or a biologic or something else. That's where shelf life testing, as well as sterility and stability and everything else, starts to get very, very interesting. And perhaps in the future, John, if we want to have a more technology-oriented discussion, I would be happy to sure. do that because I do, I do work a lot in that area. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to come back to, the, to what your original comments are on the, the promissory note because that's something uh, a little more applicable to our industry across the board. Just to give you and your audience a little historical perspective, um, in the past, you're you're exactly right, John, 
FDA has been willing to take these promissory notes. As I said, basically the company says, well, we don't have this right now, but you know, here's 95% of the submission and we'll give you this last few percent as soon as it's ready. In the past, FDA has been willing to take that. Uh, unfortunately, and I hate to say this, John, but there's a lot of truth to it, um, some companies in our industry have uh, have reneged, have not met yeah. their obligations. And to, to be fair, not just device companies, but drug companies have done this too. And as a result, FDA has gotten burned. And so today, they're much more reluctant. They're much more hesitant to take a promissory note. You can still do it. I still am able in some cases to get them to take a promissory note, but it's become a, a more difficult pill to get yeah. them to, to, to swallow. Yeah, I, and, and sometimes the, the rules are made not because somebody was doing something correctly, but because somebody didn't do something correctly. And, and Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> that's often the case when it comes to regulation. Yeah. And, just to finish up the uh, the discussion of this particular point, when it comes to um, you know one of the one of the recommendations which I strongly agree with that you make in your column, is not providing all the expected testing. Well, to me, that's a very amateur mistake. You know, one of the common reasons why five ten Ks are rejected is because the company does you know a dozen tests, and FDA comes back and says, well, what about these other two tests? We would. We want to see, you know, these other tests. Well, that's such a rookie, that's such an amateur mistake that should never happen. That can easily be avoided by, and this is something that you and I have talked about um, uh, in the past, John, communication yeah. in advance with the agency in the form of a pre-submission meeting or something else. Uh, and this is something that I do routinely. I present to the FDA, here is our complete testing matrix. Uh, as your audience may know, FDA will not review data during the pre-submission meeting. That happens at the point of the submission. But mm -hmm. what they will review and what they should review is your testing matrix. Here is a list of all of the tests that we're going to do. Um, and assuming the data in what we say it's going to show, these are all of the tests that are necessary in order to establish the safety and efficacy and to, to, to support the labeling for our device. So, so it's unfortunate that this happens so often because because it is a uh, it is a rookie mistake. It is, yeah. It the last is. The, the last two recommendations uh, in your column, John, that you mentioned, and I agree with, one hundred percent, are both great big topics. Both topics that we've talked about uh, in the past before. Uh, one in terms of uh, risk, and the second in terms of substantial equivalence. Now, mm -hmm. again, we've we've talked, I think, about both of those topics in the past, but. At a high level, what do you think people should know in terms of risk as well as substantial equivalence? Yeah, I think, well, I think in, just in regulatory uh, submissions and, and expected be industry best practices in general, I mean, we're, we're in an era where risk management is kind of front and center, uh, not only when it comes to products, but also now with 1345, 2016, they've they've implemented this concept of risk-based quality management system. So, and it's, it makes good sense. I mean, you've got standard ISO 14971 that's been widely accepted. It's been harmonized for a long time now. And and the premise or the the idea, the concept behind risk is to demonstrate that uh, your product is safe, uh, frankly, and that 
you've identified the specific hazardous situations and harms and, and estimated the, the likelihood and the severity of those particular items and, and that you've taken the necessary con, um, mitigations and that you've implemented the, the appropriate controls to ensure that the product that you're um, manufacturing and delivering to patients is going to you know, perform as you expect and it's not going to create any sort of um, unnecessary or unexpected risks. So um, from an FDA perspective, you need to demonstrate that. And I think, you know, certainly there's, even within a, a class 2, 5, 10K type of product, I mean, there, obviously there's levels to this for sure. But the more complicated your product is, as far as like it, the number of components or subsystems or interfaces and things like that, there is an expectation that you have thought about those things from a risk management standpoint and that you define and document and present the case uh, accordingly. Um, you know, we got, we got to remember one of the, the major functions of FDA, especially as it relates to medical devices, is to essentially monitor and, and, and ensure that the products that are being used for, for medical procedures are safe you know that's a big piece of what they're trying to do and and uh you know if a device that is cleared under an fda watch uh somehow creates some sort of issue or or problem i mean that's evening news <laughs> topic you know that's something that the no med device company and i'm quite sure fda doesn't want to be blasted uh, across the media so uh, i know there's been congressional hearings on on this type of topic so you know, do yourself a favor, do uh, um, your FDA reviewer a favor and capture and document and present your case from a risk management standpoint. Be thorough about that. And then the other piece about... Well, that's stuff, certainly a terrific yeah. question, <laughs> No, I was just going to say the other piece about uh, demonstrating equivalence with predicates. I mean, folks, that's the whole premise behind a 510K submission. It's not about whether or not your product works, frankly. It's about uh, demonstrating substantial equivalence uh, of your product to a predicate device. And it just it kind of blows my mind. And, and your statistic at the beginning was interesting that, what was that again? 75% get rejected. And then what would you say? 89%? It's because... 85%. They, 85% because they didn't demonstrate substantial equivalence. You know, come on. This is the, the whole idea behind a 510K. And so... Uh, obviously, that's a pretty important piece that one needs to address as part of your submission. So, John, as always, I think that's all terrific advice. I would just add a couple of things uh, on the risk side. Um, again, these are both topics that you and I have discussed in the past, and maybe because there are there is so much misunderstanding, we should do it again. But on the risk side, I would say two things. Um, first is uh, that, that you are, uh, that I often see companies take their risk management plan that they put together as re required in the design controls and literally copy and paste that into their regulatory submission as their risk mitigation strategy. And I often say, uh, I don't even have to read it and I know right away that it's wrong yeah. or at the very least that it's incomplete because the risk management plan that we do for the design controls is just one small sliver, one, one segment uh, of the complete risk mitigation strategy that goes into the 510K submission. That's point number one. The second point on risk that I would like to make is just to remind the audience 
what exactly the regulatory requirements are for risk in the 510K. There are basically two of them. One is that your new device cannot introduce any new risks that are not already known or present in the existing or the predicate device. And the second is that uh, in terms of the level of risk, the level of risk for uh, can higher uh, for any of these known risks in your new device as it is in the predicate. It can be the same or, or lower, but it cannot be higher. Now, strictly speaking, that's what the regulation says, but we don't live in a black and white world, and I do not take a literal interpretation to the regulation as so many people do. I try to understand the intent of the regulation and then to apply it. Many times I've been involved in a 510K, for example, where there are, let's just pick a number, 10 risks that we've identified. Right. Nine of them are uh, the same as the predicate device, but one of them is not. One of them is new. Does that necessarily kick us out of the 510K universe into perhaps a de novo? The short answer is absolutely not, at least not, not, not necessarily. If I can go into the agency and argue, yes, there is one new additional risk that's not present in the predicate, but I can uh, dismiss that by saying, you know, comparatively speaking, um, it's really not that big of a deal, especially if a, a failure mode associated with that risk is a, is a trivial one, then I can keep it in the 510K if I can't then maybe that's the opportunity to, uh, to keep it in the, you know, to kick it over to the de novo. So, uh, so, so those are the two points that I wanted to remind the audience in terms of risk, that your uh, risk management plan is not the same as your risk mitigation strategy. And obviously know what the regulatory requirements are. You can't right. create any new risks and the level of risk has to be the same or lower than uh, what they are in the predicate, at least in theory. Yeah. And finally, when it comes to substantial equivalence, yeah, you're right. 85% of 510Ks that are rejected are rejected specifically because of substantial equivalence. I find this, to be honest, laughable. I think this is such an amateur mistake. This should never happen. No company should ever, ever, ever have a 510K rejected because of substantial equivalence or the lack thereof. I agree. It's such an easy mistake to, to avoid. Again, it comes back to what I mentioned earlier and what you and I have talked about before, communication with the agency and turn on whether you do it as a pre-sub or something else. But one of the things that you, you, you bring to the agency in advance of your submission, here's our new medical device. This is the, what it does. This is the way that it works. This is um, what we're going to say about about it in terms of the labeling. This is our regulatory pathway, you know, 510K, uh, class two or class one, and here's why. Here's what we're going to be using for our predicate, and here's why. Oh, by the way, I also like to include what I'm not using as a predicate and why I'm not using it. And uh, hopefully, everybody will buy in and uh, agree that we're all pulling in the same direction. Uh, it's, it's just amazing to me how many companies, you know, they they... They have these things happen, and um, uh, it's just frustrating after yeah. after 25 years of playing this game. So, you know, this <laughs> yeah. is why I, I, I appreciate the opportunity for you and I to kind of share some of our thoughts and some of our best practices with the audience. I don't want to put words in your mouth, John, but it's one of the ways that I try to uh, make the world a better place. Yeah, no, and, and Mike, I'm, I'm glad we had this conversation and, and uh, appreciate you uh, mentioning this particular content piece. So, folks, um, 
as Mike mentioned at the beginning, I'll, I'll share a link with this uh, to this article. It's called Seven Common Mistakes That Sink FDA 510K Clearance. And you can find it on MedDevice online. And I know that uh, you can also read some really fantastic articles from Mike Drews as well on MedDevice online. So a lot of good content. Well, that's um, very kind of you to say, John. Thank you so much. Why don't we why don't we wrap this up with just yeah, one sure. last question? So, uh, what would be the do you think is the most important takeaway, the most important soundbite, uh, either that we've talked about today or something else that you've mentioned in your column uh, regarding uh, this five ten k rejection problem and trying to get past it? What is the one piece of information that you really want the the audience to walk away with and remember? Well, I think the statistic that you share doesn't lie, Mike. 85% of 510Ks that are rejected are done so because of uh, the sub- substantial equivalence. I mean, that, like you said, that's such a rookie mistake. So if you do one thing right in your 510K, uh, do realize that demonstrating substantial equivalence is the number one thing. I mean, of course, all these other tips that we've shared are key as well, but you got to demonstrate substantial equivalence. You just, you have to do that. What about you, Mike? I think that's a good piece of advice, John. And the thing that I would leave with your audience, and oh, by the way, I'm a big fan of what Ronald Reagan used to say, and that is trust, but verify. So for those of you that want to verify those statistics, you can find them as part of the, the medical device user, user fee amendments. The DUFA, FDA is required to put out quarterly statistics. So every three months on FDA's website, there is a very extensive report. It's usually some 300 plus pages long. Um, and if anybody wants, you know, we can the link or just send me an email, but you can verify those statistics. They change obviously every quarter, plus or minus a few percent, but they've been fairly consistent for a number of years. Yeah. Um, so the, the last piece that I would like to leave your audience um, and this is a recurring theme with, with me, John, as you know, and as I'm sure many in the audience who regularly listen, um, is so many of the things that we've talked about today, so many of the things that John very nicely uh, described in his column, Seven Common Mistakes that Sink a 510K, uh, so many of these things can be greatly minimized, if not completely avoided, by communicating in advance with the agency. This is not supposed to be, you know, a, um, a don't treat the enemy, the, the FDA as an enemy. That's a huge mistake. If the first time that FDA is seeing your device is during your actual submission, to me, that is a huge mistake. Yeah. And unfortunately, that is still very much the, uh, the practice in our industry today. It is. It is. Well, Mike, uh, great to, to have a conversation with you as always. And folks, uh, if this is your first time listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, I encourage you to go through the archives and check out some of the previous conversations. Mike and I have had quite a few. There have been other guests as well, but do check that out. Uh, and um, I guess, Mike, is uh, somebody you should know about if you're putting together a pre-submission or a de novo or a 510k or a PMA because you know what this is what Mike does for a living and he hinted at it uh, throughout today's conversation but Mike works a lot with industry but he also um, does consult for for regulatory agencies including FDA as well so he's definitely an insider he's a, a guy that's in the know 
and uh, really a great resource for you to tap into as you prepare you know, this valuable information about the the regulatory status of your product. So reach out to Mike Drew's Vascular Sciences. And of course, if you are you know engaged in any sort of product development activities, documenting risk, you're building your quality system. I don't, if you have something, that's that's terrific. Even if you don't have something, it's it's there's a company here to help, and that company is Greenlight.Guru. So, you know, we focus on true quality uh, aspects of of product development, of risk management, of of just quality management system in general. You know, compliance is is a, a secondary. It's important. Don't mishear me. You need to be in compliance, but you need to shift that mindset. I think for so long, the industry has been stuck in in just thinking about compliance as uh, the way that we need to address these things. But you know, I, I think Mike has mentioned before in previous conversations, just demonstrating compliance means you're a C student. <laughs> it means you're average. Uh, so maybe you should shift and focus a little bit more on true quality so that the products that we're designing, developing, and manufacturing are as safe and effective and meet those indications for use uh, to the utmost possibility. So, you know, if you want to learn a little bit more about what we're doing at greenlight.guru, just go to our website and uh, you can re- request more information. So I want to thank my guest, Mike Drews, and this has been... John Spear, the host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.